Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now, here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatic. Welcome to the Commercial Real Estate Podcast, powered by First National. I am your co-host, Adam Pawatic, sitting here with my other co-host, Aaron Cameron, who just welcomed his new baby into the world. This is a little break from our usual intro, but I thought I'd insert this moment here to congratulate Aaron on that. Thank you. And welcome back uh, to work. Lachlan, Lachlan William Frederick Cameron, very strong <laughs> Scottish, British name, which I am neither of, but it, that's, just, that's just how it ended up. Perfect. The topic today is the Emerging Trends in Real Estate Report put out by PwC and ULI. We are going to break this episode up into to two parts because it is a, a large amount of information, but it's all super interesting. So we don't want to we don't want to cut anything out. So we're going to welcome back to the podcast today Frank Magliocco, who is a partner of the National Real Estate Leader of PwC. Welcome back, Frank. Great to be back. Can you say his name one more time? I did anglicize it there for sure. There is a a, <laughs> a, a, a stronger pronunciation that I would invite our, our guest to put into, into the mic. <laughs> he skirted that, yeah. didn't there he? There you go. So so it's it's Malioko. Okay. Malioko. There we go. That's good. <laughs> yeah, so, so welcome back. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you wanted last year's report, we did cover that last year, obviously, and that is up on the archives in the on the website, and I'll put it in the show links as well. But I'm sure everybody right now is focused on 2020. What's coming for 2020? You know, 2019 is almost done. So, and this we'll is a better this is a better time podcast because this time we're actually doing it while you're launching it, right? Like it's exactly. just, is it just just recently available for digesting. Exactly. We just issued our press release a few weeks ago, and we have our launch event actually this Friday, uh, October, and um, so we're really looking forward to it. Great. So maybe just for new listeners or those that just don't want to take the time to go back and find the old one, why don't we talk a little bit about the process of collecting the the data and kind of what that looks like, what that entails? Sure. So you know, this is it's a great exercise that we undertake not only here in Canada but in the U.S. So it's a North American report, but we do split it up into two chapters. We actually have 150 face-to-face interviews with the CEOs of some of the largest private, public, and institutional real estate investors. And then we also have about over 2,000 surveys that are responded to by various people within the real estate. So we get a pretty good snapshot of what's happening in the marketplace. And, and basically, we're asking them to, you know, on a variety of questions and what they see real estate looking like in the next year. Now, we know that real estate takes a long time to move, but trends do uh, do come up year over year. And I think, you know, one of the things that I'm really proud of, you know, by the way, this has been uh, 40 years that we've been doing this. And if you go back to our publication, you will see that a lot of the things that we talked about actually did come to fruition in the uh, real estate cycles ahead. And I guess it shouldn't be surprising. In, in the same kind of time frame that you would expect? or No, they emerge. They do emerge, but I think, you, you know, it, you know, it shouldn't be surprising because the people we're talking to are the ones that are creating the trends. You know, they're the these large real estate companies that are making these investments and plays, and that ultimately come to bear. Future episode idea: We'll have Frank back in five years to review all the predictions we talk about today and do an accuracy report. You know, <laughs> like a fact check. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, one that we're really proud. If you can go back and fact check this one, is we coined. I think it was probably four years ago, five years ago. You know, that it would be the rise of the permanent renter. And we coined that because we said that affordability was going to become acute and that, you know, people just won't be able to afford real estate. And that, you know, if you think about back here, at least in Canada, renting wasn't, you know, something that was accepted like in the US. Whereas now you'll see that, you know, pretty much every, <laughs> the amount of people that are renting is is much more significant. And that's it, not necessarily a, by, by, by choice. By choice. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. 
So, you know, let's first talk about one of the kind of the, the main themes of the 2020 report was sort of the customer driven focus that you had, uh, that some of your institutional interviewers were saying there's a little bit more focus on what the customer experience should be. Why don't you just kind of talk about what that means in general and what you kind of gleaned out of, you know, why they were saying that? Well, it's literally the opening line of the report. So it must be, it must be topical. <laughs> it is. It was something really interesting that, you know, we, uh, you know, broadly, the team you know took out of this year when we met with a lot of these and had these face-to-face interviews. There was a lot of talk about how customers are reshaping real estate, and you know, while you know, cash flows and NPVs and cap rates are always going to be important for the real estate exec, there was a lot more focus on you know what are the needs of the customer, be it the tenant, be it the homeowner, be it the you know the shopper. So they're kind of looking down at that very kind of granular level because that is driving, you know, and shaping the real estate that is being produced today and tomorrow. So, you know, for example, we talked in the past on previous podcasts, you know, on how, you know, e-commerce and people are being much more, you know, how that is shooting up like a hockey stick and therefore, you know, it's impacting the retail environment. And so what have you know, the owners of retail had to do in order to keep people coming to them, they had to create an experience. And so retail is all experiential now. And you'll see that where people are investing money, the owners of these large malls are about creating an experience. And so that's, you know, creating, you know, entertainment and dining experiences and just uh, interaction with their uh, customers. More attractive interior. Absolutely. So that's kind of that, you know, driven that, you know, you talk about, you know, the office segment. And when you speak to, you know, the landlords, yes, it's a box and people come there, but it's different than it was before. And it now is much more important to have great amenities as well in your building. Yeah, there's one quote in here that I find really interesting where it's, you know, that I had not thought about it this way, but the work environment is becoming more playful and more livable. Absolutely. Isn't that, that's kind of counterintuitive. And where no. we are in a we work building that features a beer tap. You know, that was definitely not the norm. <laughs> yeah, and there's, there's, there's yeah. cool hipster music playing and there's neon lights and it's all kind of, you know, Cement everywhere, like it's a different, it's a different vibe. Frank wishes it, he got off of that floor rather than our floor now. I think, yeah. <laughs> but you know what? It's it's funny you say that. So we're kind of walking the talk. You know, PwC is just opening up a new building in Vaughan, and so a week ago I toured I toured the place to take a look at it. And if you take a look at what's happening in that office environment, it's exactly like you said. You know, the bare, you know, concrete exposed, creating all these what I'd call areas where we have couches and and very comfortable big chairs and things like that to make it much more livable like you're working in your you know in your living room or family room and it's doing that because it wants to create a, an era of collaboration you know people want to go there they feel comfortable there versus a, a more stale kind of desk environment so you know no one's assigned a desk now at PwC at the new office you know they come in an hotel and can hotel where they want and maybe they want to sit on you know in a pod that has three or four big chairs maybe they want to sit at a, an open desk you know so it's it's just created a whole new environment. How do you you personally sort of engage with that experience? Like, do you do you enjoy that, or do you prefer the the old way? I think personally, I quite enjoy the collaboration aspect. I think there's a place also for meeting rooms because often, especially what we do at PwC, you know, there's a lot of confidential, and so you need to have confidential calls. So you need that kind of quiet space and an area where you know you can't be heard. But in working with our team, I can tell you, I'm much more enjoy having that kind of casual environment. Like we just had a um, meeting the other day 
And, you know, our offices here also have that kind of casual, free-flowing, collaborative workspace. It's much more inviting for all staff. It kind of breaks down the barriers, I think, and you get much more free-flow thinking, talking, engaging, as opposed to, you know, someone sitting on this side of the desk and staff sitting on the other side of the desk. So I quite enjoy it. Focusing on, sorry Adam, focusing on the customer-driven comment still and and sticking with Office, do you get a sense that there's a change in the amenities that are being brought to the Office package? It's not like you walk in the round round door and there's an elevator bay and you kind of get in the elevator and go upstairs. Like what's what's changing in that retrospect or that respect? Absolutely, it's, it's huge. Big changes we're seeing there and it's all about the amenities, I believe. You know, in talking to a lot of the landlords, you know, they're they're very focused on curating, you know, uh, great spaces. So you you know, with the concierge services and having all sorts of you know amenities like bike lockers and showers and flex space in the building. So there's a lot happening in that area to ensure that it's creating an environment for people because I think you have to have those amenities. Because tenants, well, the owners, the tenants, their employees are asking for it and needing it. So you want an engaged workforce. You want to attract talent. You've got to be at a space that they want to come to. And in order to do that, you've got to have great amenities. So that is clearly something that we heard loud and clear this year when we went around that there's a, a strong focus and sharp focus around that area. You know where my brain goes is just the people you've talked to. They're just changing their language, and it, it makes sense because rather than talking about cash flows and IRRs, they're really focusing on the customer. Still, at the end of the day, if you've got better amenities and your tenants and their employees now want to spend more time at the office and they're generating more revenue, you can charge higher rents and you can still you increase your it. cash flow at the end of the day. <laughs> you got yeah. it. There it dots is. That, connected. That, yeah, dots connected. Dots connected. That's exactly it. That's IRR exactly. and all the stuff that we truly care about. Exactly. <laughs> hey, we're not saying it's not important, but I, you know, I think you know clearly you got it. people are really focused on that. But it's interesting how that kind of focus is changed for those exact reasons. Because if you do that right. It's going to drive all those other things. We all up. benefit because I'd rather work in a place like that than not, obviously, right. Right? right? And we're talking about obviously the you know the service-driven experience for the different asset classes. You know, co-living would be the obvious one for uh, for residential. But it, can you think of any examples of industrial experiencing any of this shift? I, I'm sitting here trying to think yeah. of myself, and uh, I've got a similar kind of blank. I haven't spent a lot of time in industrial buildings the last little while, but yeah. uh, I can't think of. That aspect of you know residential, you can retail office absolutely rhyme off three or four good examples of each. Yeah. But industrial, I'm kind of struggling. And, with and we're going to get this. To, I'd have to say I haven't seen that yet, or I haven't heard of that. Not to say that it's not happening, but uh, I haven't. You know, in, in the interviews that we've had, there's a lot of talk about industrial and what's happening in the industrial segment, but not to the extent that we talked about like co-sharing and okay, and yeah, stuff like no, that. yeah I, haven't, I haven't seen that yeah. office. It's we see it in spades. And it's interesting, you know, on the co-living, when I say co-living, there's, you know, initially when we first talked about this, you're saying this isn't really going to happen. But I think the reality is, you know, we're starting to see some of this happen. And I think if you're aware, there was a, an announcement made at in Ottawa at the Zibi kind of big development that they're doing. Common and Common, dream exactly. Yeah. That are going to, to to create an entire building that's focused around that. So it'll be interesting we, to see um, how that works. We just recorded an episode with, what's the gentleman's name, of student housing. Henry Morton. Henry Henry Morton, thank you. Sorry, Henry. And you know, he he had this quote that I love. It's called programmatic living. And he was focused on student housing because that's his right. business. But I just that concept of, you know, the co-living and but having building a community and and 
creating programs and different things for your tenants. Like that's customer centric again, right? It's, you've, you're no longer just building an apartment building and saying, okay, go to your unit. It's, right. it's no, I've got to have programs. I've got to have things for you to do to attract you to want to live in this, this unit and pay higher rents. Exactly. If we were to talk about some of the more fringe asset classes, you know, self storage and hotels spring to mind. There, you see a, you know, a very clear amenity war going on for the last, you know, five or six years in terms of new builds. I mean, I know there's operators out in Ottawa that will do delivery to your home, and there's coffee machines. It's not just a, you know, a cave where you go lock up your stuff. And then uh, hotels, obviously, given the hotels been on fire for the last couple of years, you know, they're getting at the high end anyway. Obviously, getting into just more and more luxury, more and more service. And so, I mean, other than industrial, you could definitely look at that straight across the asset spectrum. I know. Yeah, I think it's it's just a function of, you know, coming back in terms of the environment in real estate, it's becoming so competitive. So how do you get your share? And I think people are saying, hey, I've got the ultimate, I got to see who the ultimate customer is. And I've got to create yeah. the right amenities for that customer in order to get that share. You know, I don't have a specific example, but I'm sure it's happening maybe in the small bay industrial space where you've got sort of those 3,000 square foot units where there is an opportunity to provide, you know, amenity packages where you're, it's no longer just a big door that you open up and guys can drop their stuff off where there's actually some, I don't know what, maybe easier or co-sharing, co-shared office shared space, office space that, yeah. where they can kind of, you know, okay, yeah, that's where I could, you know, I make my wood, but then I can go over here and use these computers that are available or something something like that. Maybe I just started something. There I don't you know. know. Started something, I think. There you Email go. info at CREpodcast.ca if you've got a good example. Yeah, so, come, yeah. yeah, come on. If you're doing this right now out there somewhere, come on on the podcast and tell us all about it. So we're, we're, we've been focused on sort of customer centricity, and I won't. I will give Frank the the benefit, or the the credit for that term. But so we've been, we've been talking about this customer centricity and how that's impacting real estate going forward. But what, of course, you can't have that conversation without talking about prop tech and what what we're seeing and what trends are kind of coming down the pipeline. So what kind of research? What did your research unveil? I think the biggest thing is just the level of discussion that we're having now at the C suite about technology. You know, we all know you live real estate that real estate companies have been laggards in this whole space. And we've just seen a massive pickup in terms of the adoption of, you know, the focus around technology lately. In all our discussions, it's come up. And, you know, to, you know, you had asked specifically about prop tech. You know, we did some research on there. This year alone, there was $6.3 billion invested in prop tech funds. A massive increase, just like a hockey stick. No different than when we saw what happened in the banking industry in fintech. What geography would that cover? Where would that investment uh, be placed? What was the, what's the borders on, the, on that money? It's very broad. It's very broad. It covers you know, everything from managing real estate, selling real estate, developing real estate. So it's very, very broad on where this is going. Where for, the money's and going. this is really interesting. So for context, there's a there's a, a graph in, in your report where it's talking about, I guess, if, as part of your surveys, you know, what impact are these types of industry disruptors having or do you think they have importance? And there's there's a whole slew of them that are of more than modern importance, so so strong importance, quite frankly. And I'll just list them off because they are really interesting. So construction technology, That's number one, yeah. yeah, artificial intelligence, right below that, and then the rest are all kind of the same as far as equally important. Big data analytics, cybersecurity, Internet of Things, of course, co-working, and then the sharing gig economy. So there's clearly a wide variety of things that the industry at large is kind of deeming these things are going to have an impact on us. Yeah, and this is all about transformation. This is all about how do they make how do they become much more efficient? So that's a lot of this technology is, is driving that to no surprise. But it's also how do you, how do they you know begin to adopt these kind of innovative customer driven models? 
And they have to because today the customer is all mobile. And so you need to kind of incorporate that and factor that in into your business. And so we see that all over the place. You know, to name some that you talked about, you know, on the construction tech side, we've seen a lot of stuff happening there, 3D printing, drones, technology, all of that. You know, we had, uh, PwC had a, an event and we brought in a whole bunch of technology companies showing what they're doing in that industry. And some of the stuff is just mind-blowing, like the AI that they're using, you know, to kind of get the highest and best use on a density of land, you know, to drone technology from, you know, window washing your buildings to kind of looking at how the progress of the building is going to make sure that, you know, mistakes aren't happening. Yeah, the one I always so like, and I'll incredible. give Amy Erickson credit for bringing this up to me, was, you know, a drone flying around on a daily basis, basically doing like a quantity surveying job yeah, and exactly. tracking everything that's been installed that day yeah. and then creating budgets and sending out invoices and it's all just automated based on what this drone saw flying around. Yeah, it's pretty, Well, drones are at the, at the bottom of the list for yeah, the importance, you know, for anybody who <laughs> who's been waiting for Amazon Prime to come via drone. Apparently the real estate industry thinks that's not eminent. So or or at least maybe it's eminent but it's not having an impact on our on our business. Yeah. But it, but it's it's interesting. There's a lot going there and and you know so when you think about technology it's having, you know, an impact on real estate, in real estate, and all around real estate. And so, you know, the AI side, you know, the robotic process automation, we're seeing that all happening in a lot of these industries, all driving through this kind of digital transformation agenda that a number of these real estate companies have because they need to be more efficient and they need to drive, you know, better value. Right? You asked the question, Adam, about what, uh, you know, the customer focus had on industrial assets. But if you look at the prop tech, all of these things are having an impact on the industrial on the industrial space all the way down the list. And maybe that's where industrial plays a big evolution or where industrial is changing significantly. You probably see AI in Amazon warehouses that we're referring well, to. And robotics yeah. and yeah. the whole nine. And yeah. then even just like you think about distribution centers and the last mile and how do you track all the packages, like that whole thing. It's It's got to be a, a just a huge, huge, you know, technology-focused business. It is, and it's like again, right? Like I said, construction. You know, it's funny. I was coming to work the other day, and I saw this big, huge construction grader that was working on a road, and and on it, it had, you know, you could see it had sensors, and it looked like you know GPS tracking in order to get the right kind of elevation and the right cut, make it more efficient, as opposed to someone you know the old days had to do it by eye and all that. Yeah. It's just incredible how you're seeing all of this stuff kind of really emerging, and it's just to be faster, more accurate, better, less human yeah. interaction, yeah. <laughs> right, and less opportunity for human error. Also, I'm, I'm kind of disappointed to see uh, blockchain is second bo- from the bottom on this list. We've had a couple episodes now dedicated to how it's going to revolutionize our industry, but maybe it doesn't mean uh, 2020 is the year. You know. I- that's. I also. I think that blockchain will ultimately have a pretty big impact. I think because people still don't understand it. I think as part of it. But there are. If you look at it globally, and not just here in Canada, globally, you know, blockchain has embraced a number of jurisdictions where you know we have some governments that are looking at putting the entire land registry on the blockchain. I think that you know, given this industry that has tons of paper, tons of documents, a lot of intermediaries, that it is ripe for disruption with blockchain. So it's interesting that, you know, the results, again, these are based on what interviewees are telling us. If you ask my personal opinion, I think that blockchain ultimately our, know, will, will be our, much higher. Our lawyer friends listening will not like that answer, right? Because it really is, you can, you can program the blockchain to effectively do 90% of the work that they're doing, all the searches and the off-title searches and the registries and everything. Exactly, right? exactly. Yeah. 
But it will never touch lenders, right, Aaron? <laughs> yeah, no, 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 don't worry. If you work in funding, technology is impacting the lending industry. It's oh, covering yeah. everything, right? So, oh, yeah, well, big data has been a thing of ours for, for a long time now. And that's, that is part of every business, I think. Yeah. One of the more interesting ones on the list is, is cybersecurity. You know, you think of that in terms of, you know, bank buildings, you know, for example, the, the one that we're in right now. But for the broader real estate holdings, how much of an interest is cybersecurity in, in their planning? So PwC did a survey of global CEOs and cybersecurity uh, was one of the top uh, risks that they saw. So it is something that is top of mind for the CEOs and the boards and real estate companies are not immune to that. And it was interesting this year when we talked to a lot of the, you know, larger companies, institutionals, and I'll, you know, we'll get to the privates in a second, but you know, when we talked to these larger institutionals, you know, cybersecurity was hugely important. You know, there's a lot of assets and not the built form assets, but other assets, you know, employee names, customers, credit information, credit card numbers, you know, for the retail that they have. And so it all comes back to reputation. And the last thing that they want is, would be a cyber breach that would impact their reputation because their brand is so important in the marketplace. And so it was a discussion that we've had much more than in the previous years. And a lot of the CEOs are keying in on this and see this as a real risk. You know, I can't tell you how many times, you know, we've been called where there's been a, a cyber breach. We're just working on right now where basically, you know, ransomware locked down the operations of this facility. And, you know, now we're in there trying to help them get through this. So it has a pretty profound effect. You know, and if you think about on the residential home builders, they carry, they have a lot of what I'd call assets, you know, in terms of people's names, numbers, SIN numbers, driver's license info, you know, in the wrong hands, you know, that's worth a lot of money to, well, to criminals. I can personalize it. I think about real estate lenders and the amount of information that yeah. we have to collect in order to approve exactly. a mortgage, whether it's commercial or, or single family. And I, Adam will attest to this. The amount of, we have to do these courses and you know, the amount of testing that goes on to make sure that, that the employees are trained on what to click and what not to click. And if you get anything at all suspicious, you know, forward it on. Like there's, there's a whole awareness campaign to, to yeah. really protect the company. And to be honest, I see so much more of that stuff. Like I would think historically, I mean, maybe the last couple of years, I would have said once a month, I might get something where I go, mm, that looks, that looks fishy to me. Now it seems like it's almost every day. There's something in my inbox like, oh, I'm not clicking that. Yeah, yeah I, I agree with that. My inbox as well. Yeah. And I think the issue is that as we be become more digital and go under this digital transformation that we're seeing that a lot of real estate companies are doing, they're much all more connected. That risk just becomes, it's great from an efficiency perspective and creates great, but it also creates these additional risks now as cyber being one of them. So, you know, on the one hand, this is great. You know, a lot of these real estate companies are doing this digital transformation to be more efficient, more effective, um, getting more data from various sources now from you know having all these internet of things and sensors everywhere which are creating a lot of a lot of data that they could then use but by doing so they've just opened up a whole bunch more portals of being attacked and i think that's one of the things that people are starting to realize and we're seeing more and more of these cyber attacks impacting real estate entities as well a common theme that you see you know not just in this report but virtually every conversation you have these days about real estate, every real estate forum you attend is affordability. And that, that is reflected throughout this report, you know, through a variety of asset classes. The feeling around affordability, you know, on my personal level, I can you know, say that I hear it more and more and more. Is that a sentiment carried by the 2,000 respondees that you have to this uh, report? Without a doubt. 
without a doubt, affordability was top of mind, not only with the uh, residential developers that we interviewed, but surprisingly, affordability came up when we talked to a lot of the institutional real estate owners as well. So it's a theme that has just continued to gain momentum. I guess you can't avoid it. You wake up, you listen to the news, you read the paper. There's always something that touches on affordability, housing prices, and you know standard of living. So it's no surprise, right? And then one of the things we have to be careful with, though, is that, uh, and I'll just I'll quote the report because it says affordability is less of a concern in most cities and provinces, which should not be subject to the same rules to some of the same rules. I'm not sure that's you're proposing that, but at least the concept that we really are two different mar- two different real estate markets, right? There's Vancouver and Toronto, and then maybe Montreal if you want to group that in. But then the rest is it just is a little bit different when it comes yeah. to affordability. It's a great point, I, but I think just to clarify that because I do recall. <laughs> yeah, recall don't take. That. I, told, I hope I didn't take it out of context. No, no. no. Yeah. I, I think it was it was I think where that was coming from uh, was one of the interviewees that basically said, you know, there's a an acute issue in Toronto and Vancouver. And so the federal government, you know, and you know various other levels of government have put in certain rules to impact demand because of how acute it was. But as we know, real estate is local, and what works in Toronto and Vancouver is not the right recipe for a Kitchener-Waterloo or an Ottawa or some other market. And I think the comment there was saying that you know not all markets are the same, and by putting something nationally right across Canada, you're having a whole bunch of unintended consequences. And I think that was what was uh, coming out of that point. And, and that's a good segue into you know one another charts that you've got in here is is migration and and net migration. Let me just flip through to find it, but it's astounding the number of people that are projected to join Toronto and Vancouver over the next four years. Yeah. So you know, there's all sorts of of metrics that are out there. You know, the ones that that I'm familiar with. You know, Bill Ted commissioned a report, which is the building and land industry. I commissioned a report by Altus to kind of look at some of this as well. But you know, in Canada, we've got three hundred and fifty thousand. That's our policy. Three hundred and fifty thousand people that are led into Canada each and every year. In the GTA, there's one hundred and fifty thousand people each year that land here in the GTA. That means we need fifty thousand units just to you know keep up with that. So there's one fundamental truth here, and that's that we don't have enough housing for the region, and it's woefully low in terms of of what we actually need. So that is only, I believe, going to exacerbate the problem. Were there any remedies kind of proposed during your, your interview process? I could tell you what a developer think, would say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I, I, I think yeah. I think you're get probably out of, right. Get out of my way. Yeah, I, I think that's probably one of the the biggest issues that we've heard, or you know, common themes. And so you're absolutely right. It's you know. You know, get out of the way, let us build. And, you know, there's a lot of merit to that. When you think about, you know, just very, it is quite interesting. So there's two things. One is, you know, the cost, so taxes that are involved. And secondly is the regulation. So when you think about the tax, and I'm sure you're all familiar with, because there's been studies left and right that have been produced, you know, the, the average amount of tax in a new home, when you add in, you know, the DCs and the education levies and the HST, et cetera, et cetera, is now up to ranging from, depending on the size, 20 to 25%. So that million-dollar home has about a quarter million dollars of taxes. So that's huge. So that's one thing. And so the condos as well. They're, they're, you know, so you buy that condo for seven hundred or 350000 22% of that is going to be taxes. So that's a huge nugget and having an impact on the price. The second is how long it takes to get 
developments through. You know, you go into the U.S. in certain markets like Texas, you can take Houston. Raw, we love the example of Houston. Houston, you could take raw dirt, you know, to a development stage in you know six months. You know, here, and you, you can typically to, build whatever you want too, yeah, right? That's yeah. that's the other thing. They'll let you if you want to build a thirty-story tower in the middle of nowhere. They'll say, "All right, if you think that makes sense, <laughs> go ahead." Yeah, but but you know, but take that, compare that, juxtapose that with with Ontario where it's on average 10 to 11 years to get it through the process. So those from the day you from the day you close on the land to the day right. that you get, you know, your, you your money start, back. But yeah. The, yeah. So it's a significant issue and I think that those two are probably the top that we heard loud and clear that's having a fairly significant impact on affordability. Well yeah, if you think about what the land hold period does to your pro forma, yeah. you can cut that in half. It was you know it, it it, it reduces the cost of the eventual property because that just gets passed along to the end consumer. Absolutely, absolutely. And that's not requiring you know DC reductions or anything that's going to become a government coffers. It's just shortening the wait time. And it's a huge has a huge impact and creates the uncertainty, right? You know, because if and I think that's one of the things in talking to the developers that you know they want they want a, l- a lot more certainty so that if they are buying something, they know that they're going to be able to develop what they want in a certain prescribed period of time versus, you know, spending years and years and battling it out, trying to get uh, where they want to. So I think that's, that's part of the big, big issue. You know, one of the other interesting topics that was covered in, in the report around affordability was kind of the impact that the stress tests have had. And what, what kind of information did you kind of pull out of that? So, that, you know, that was a really interesting conversations we had around that. And I think that, you know, for the most part, when we talked to developers, to my surprise, Many of them said, you know, when they implemented the stress test, you know, maybe it wasn't perfect, but, you know, they understood it and, and said it was maybe not a bad idea just how hot the market was. This is the mortgage uh, stress test. I don't know if we've... Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that, fair enough. Is, uh, you have to read the report to understand what we're talking about. Yeah, the mortgage stress <laughs> test, yes. And so it was not a bad thing. But I think it had a lot of unintended consequences. And, and, and this year, when we were talking about that, we raised it. So, you know, what are your thoughts about the mortgage stress test now? And it was really interesting that, you know, some themes entered or came out of that. And one of them being that they saw that this new kind of unregulated and opaque lending environment emerged. You know, so you've got these private funds that are out there that are lending, you know, second mortgages and even third mortgages in certain instances. And it's created, I think, what I believe is the opposite of what the mortgage stress test was supposed to do. It was supposed to take people out of the market that really couldn't afford it. And what's happening are these people are just finding other lenders that are not regulated now and, and very opaque because before you had visibility on what the market profile, the mortgage profile looked like, whereas now it's kind of hidden in this kind of this other kind of unregulated market. And it's created an issue from my perspective. And I think that that's, when I think about it, that's a big concern for me and what's going to happen, you know, be it the developers that are kind of funding some of these or some of these private, private funds that have been established to help people you know, when I say help, to provide funding for second, even third mortgages that they can't get at a bank. And so that, and from my perspective, is a year from now when we get together, I'd love to have, <laughs> see what, what's played what's out transpired, there. What's yeah. transpired, because that for me is very concerning because, uh, you know, people are, you know, paying much higher interest rates than they would have if they went to the bank. So I think, you know, this is one of the unintended consequences that have resulted and you know that could have a pretty and having an impact on affordability, right? If you can't you can't afford these mortgages, that's going to be a challenge for for a lot of a lot of homeowners. I, I know that you know, anecdotally that um, 
of groups I've spoken to in the last year, there's a handful that were in private mortgages that I found surprising, given that you know two years previous they would not have been. And you right. kind of talk about their debt structure, and you go, oh, "Really?" Okay. And, and if you look at what they're charging, and you compare it to, you know, clearly because they have to do it for commensurate for the risk, and you're saying, "Well, the people that are doing that are probably the least people that can afford that eight or ten or twelve percent mortgage." Right. One topic or segment of affordability that I don't think gets a lot of coverage is, you know, the impact of rising rents across different asset classes, whether it be, you know, office and industrial. You know, you have companies paying more of their of their revenue towards the rents, that means they've got less, you know, of their income to to pay their employees, and that's the other equation of affordability is if, you know, is the income to afford, you know, your your single family rents. You know, how are you seeing that impact in in the in the your in your research? Well, you know, there's a really interesting trends that are happening there. You know, because it impacts talent. You know, if talent can't afford to live in the big cities because it's too expensive, they can't buy a house, they can't afford the rents. You know, they're going to move to places where they can. And I think what we're seeing happening in the U.S. will be happening in Canada. So in the U.S., if you look at the U.S., the big gateway cities like New York, San Francisco, aren't seeing that big growth. Where you're seeing the big growth. Is in Austin, you know, Raleigh, you know, Jacksonville, those kind of eighteen-hour cities, because it creates a more livable city for them, an affordable city for them. So talent is going there. So you're seeing a lot of businesses moving into those areas. So it's 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 reshaping real estate that way. Just go to Austin, and you know, it's become now a, a tech hub as well. And you can see how that's growing. Why? Because it's much more livable, much more affordable. And I think we're going to see that here as well. You know, as the rents begin, you know, continue to rise, affordability is, you know, clearly out of reach for for most people. You know, businesses here got to figure out how if I can't pay them, how am I going to get top talent? And you know, you know, we're going to see the continued rise of, you know, what I'd call these smaller markets or 18-hour cities if I may in the future that will be attracting that talent. That or we got to figure out transit, yeah, yeah. <laughs> which is a, which yeah. is a bigger issue. Yeah, I've, I've often fantasized about living in London, Ontario, but the two and a half hour commute gets me every time. <laughs> a right? Tokyo rocket train, could yes, solve which that. solved that but, problem. But you know, it's, it's a great you know it's a great segue into another common thing that we heard, which is all about transit oriented development, and which is really really important. And what we're seeing much more now this year is Metrolinx kind of coming at it from yes, we're moving people, but we're also trying to create good real estate. So talk to us about where a good train station or a good hub will be. And let's talk about what kind of real estate development we could do on there. Because if you've got good transit, you know, between, you know, hub A and hub B, there's a lot of potential for development of real yeah, estate. It boggles my mind that there, I think there's one train a day that goes back and forth between, you know, Kitchener, Waterloo and Toronto. And it's at 630 in the morning and at seven o'clock at night, like it's not a consistent every 45 minutes. And that's, there's a, there's an easy sort of, you want to call it 18 hour city that's, you know, an hour outside of Toronto that could easily benefit from this type of, you know, transit oriented uh, development. So you can't come in for just a meeting, you gotta come in for the day. It's, yeah, you're, yeah, you're in for the day no matter what. And like it's, it means you're up at five in the morning. Like it's not a, <laughs> not a great, it's just, it, is, it, is, it impacts your, your lifestyle. So I think we'll cut this off as part one. Thanks very much, Frank. Really appreciate that. And we'll save the uh, thanks for the end of yeah, uh, yeah, end I guess. Of part yeah, two. So we'll, yeah. we'll we'll go into part two next. And just as a as a teaser, we're going to cover cities at more granular level, so you can uh, root for your favorite hometown. We're going to talk about the money supply, and then end off with some of the the best bets for twenty twenty. So you want to pay attention to that. Thank you for listening to the CRE podcast. The information from this broadcast is not to be relied upon as financial investing, professional accounting, or legal advice. 
First National Financial LP holds Financial Services Commission of Ontario License Number 10514 and 11252.